Chapter 8 The Second Wave Spring, and Mama's Garden, bloomed into its fullest flamboyant array in 1918 just like any other year. Despite the frequent reports of the flu's rampage around the globe, our isolated world and Pierre remained untouched. Mama was, for the time being at least, good to her word about our immunity. Soon the wrathful heat of summer could no longer be held at bay. Springtime melted and the flowers wilted, but what care were they of ours? With the heat also came the merciful conclusion of the school year. Even Miss Carrington, our teacher, must have been counting down the seconds until our 2.30 dismissal that day. When Joe Murdoch ran back for his forgotten cap at 2.31, he found the door dead-bolted shut and heard a woman within weeping tears of joy, or so he claimed. Regardless of his tale's truth, the cheer of freedom and summer's unexplored potential washed over us. The undefined stream of days that followed melted together, each into the next like drops of mercury. The cup of life brimmed and overflowed with the discovery of new forest land, self-made forts and bunkers, blackberry and blueberry picking, and splashing in the lake's cooling waters. We drank chilled tea and lemonade from the icebox, celebrated Pip's fourth birthday, wrangled fireflies in late evening's pale light, and danced to Daddy's daily fiddling. It was around the middle of summer when Walter and I noticed a change come over Mama. She began sleeping in most mornings, not rising until well after me and my brothers. When she played with us, her fountain of boundless energy was more like an intermittent stream, running high one moment and dry the next. Poor Pip suffered the most, as he soon found himself in stiff competition for the snacks in our cupboards. Only after an uncharacteristic visit by our family physician, Dr. Schumacher, did we finally learn what was going on. Our whole family was gathered around the dinner table, where Daddy made the announcement over one of Abigail's famous berry cobblers. Mama was pregnant. If everything happened according to Dr. Schumacher's supposed timetable, we could expect a new brother or sister sometime around Christmas. Walter and I were thrilled. Pip was not. Will I have to move out of my room? He asked dejectedly, pushing the cobbler around his plate with his fork. It was the first time I'd ever seen him uninterested in food. Not right away, Mama answered. But now that you're such a big boy, it'll be time to move across the hall anyway. Can I keep my toys? Or will the baby get those too? You can keep your toys, of course, Mama assured him. But if there's anything you've outgrown, you could give it to the baby as a present. I think I'll keep them, Pip said curtly. Having given his final word on the matter, he dove into his dessert. Is that why we couldn't go out west this summer? To Yellowstone? Walter asked. While he had never brought up the matter with Daddy, he had expressed to me his disappointment over the trip's tacit cancellation. Daddy gave him an apologetic grin. 
Sorry, Walter. That sort of travel is difficult on a pregnant woman, and I knew you wouldn't want to see those things without Mama. We'll go next summer with the new baby. That answer was good enough for Walter, because Daddy was right. Walter never would have left Mama behind, not even if it meant seeing every national park from Montana to California. Wherever Mama was, that's where Walter anchored his heart, too. And so, instead of exploring the West, our summer explorations took place closer to home. Despite her pregnancy, Mama still chauffeured us as often as we wanted to the Isle, that's what we had begun calling it, across Lake Acheron. As we charted this new land, we discovered the telltale marks of previous inhabitants, a rotting cabin and outhouse, abandoned beside a natural spring, became a site of archaeological significance to us. There, under Mama's watchful tutelage, we unearthed treasures which might provide clues about those who had called the Isle home. On the days Hattie joined us, we commenced the building of a treehouse in the arms of a magnificent oak. Undeterred by Walter's vocal protests, nor by our clear ignorance of arboreal architecture, we managed to nail a few shaky planks into the boughs overhead. But construction was slow going. After all, we had to import our building materials by rowboat, and the project never went much further than that. Although I still felt uneasy around Hattie, the odd tension between me and my best friend subsided and disappeared altogether in those happy months. We played and laughed and talked more than ever, until I eventually became comfortable in my uncomfortableness. And, by contrast, her interactions with Walter only led to an increase in bickering and astringency between them. If I had once been worried about some budding closeness, I now worried their constant quibbling might drive her away entirely. But as July went out and August came in, Hattie's visits to Asphodel Glade continued. The weeks of summer waned, Mama's belly waxed, and it seemed that the days of the strange flu would end with our vacation. The articles about it in the paper, which had been daily headlines at summer's beginning, became relegated to sporadic footnotes shoved into the margins. Like an ice cube in the mid-August heat, it appeared the abstruse illness would melt away into the nothingness from which it had sprung last spring. As always, the end of August corralled us unwillingly back onto the hard slab benches we had escaped in May. A malaise that had nothing to do with the flu had apparently stricken 32 of Pierre's middle-grade children on the same day, Somberly, we all stared forward at Miss Carrington and her portable blackboard as we inwardly commenced our countdown until the next summer break. And so, life entered that miserable quagmire of educational drudgery which all young boys experience those first weeks after returning to school. Like the wheels of a train rotating in repeated motion along their track, Walter and I would roll out of bed Pip was still blessed with his pre-educational youth. Eat breakfast, walk to school, learn, walk home, finish our homework, and perhaps have a little playtime before dinner, chores, and bed. 
best we could figure, this year would be no different than its predecessors. The academic train would plow inexorably forward, taking only infrequent stops to refuel before arriving again at its next summer destination. Exactly one eternity from now. Such was our expectation. But the flu had different plans. It was during a post-lunch recess in early September that Miss Carrington caught Jeremiah Lassiter, Pierre Primary's fifth-grade loudmouth, scaring a group of younger students. He had been jabbering to them about another outbreak of the flu. According to Jeremiah, this one was so deadly, people would catch it at breakfast and croak before supper. Miss Carrington promptly set him to work, writing lines at the blackboard, but the damage had been done. By the end of the day, the rumor had reached every ear. We would all be pushing up daisies in a few weeks' time. Poor Miss Carrington found her hands quite full soothing a few of the younger students, who had burst into tears over their impending demise. With so much crying and so little learning going on, she eventually decided to address the whole classroom. I don't know what you heard, or from whom you heard it, she chirped in tones far too sweet to be authentic. But let me reassure you that you are in no danger. God is watching out for you, protecting each and every one of us. Besides that, I don't know of a single person in Pierre who has come down with this flu, and there's no reason to think that will change. At face value, her words were reassuring, yet in them I detected a slight and unsettling tremor. Miss Carrington was a fine teacher, but she was a shit actress. She was clearly hiding something, or at least knew more than she was letting on. When the clock struck half-past two, she dismissed everyone but Jeremiah. She told the rumor-monger he would have to wait inside until she could speak with his father. For my part, I hurried out the door ahead of Walter and Hattie. My bladder had taken on more liquid than the Titanic, and I needed to reach the outhouse before anyone else. Where you going? My brother called after me as I ran around the side of the three-room schoolhouse. Take a pee, I shouted. Well, I'm not going to wait up for you. I'll catch up. Unfortunately, I found the outhouse locked when I yanked on the door handle. A kid from the upper-grade classroom must have beat me to it. Wait your turn, the girl inside barked. Anita Morton was both the most popular and most horrible girl in the seventh grade. By the time her scowling face appeared through the open door, she had made me wait a full five minutes. I would have gladly shared some of my thoughts about her, but I had to pee so bad I could feel my ears leaking. I rushed inside, took care of business, and re-emerged into the fresh air, much relieved and a couple pounds lighter than when I had entered. A quick glance around the schoolyard told me the other kids had all cleared out. Walter had also been true to his word. He was gone, and Hattie had seemingly tagged along with him rather than wait on me. My disappointment was short-lived. As I made for the front of the schoolhouse, I heard a pair of voices around the corner. One belonged to Miss Carrington, 
The other was familiar and obviously male, but I couldn't quite place its owner. Both spoke in low tones and obviously didn't want anyone else to hear. Still around the corner and out of sight, I held my breath and listened. You won't be able to hide it for long, said the mystery man. He sounded a touch exasperated, but not outright angry. Tomorrow, maybe the day after, it'll be in all the papers again. Miss Carrington's voice still carried that quiver as she replied, I know, but I can't have Jeremiah scaring the younger kids. Mystery solved. She was talking to Caleb Lassiter. Whereas we walked home from school most days, Caleb picked Jeremiah up on his way home from the mine. Miss Carrington went on. He was telling them how they'll be dying in their beds soon. Very inappropriate. It's up to their parents to tell them what's happening. Yeah, but now it's happening here. Iron fingers grabbed my lungs and squeezed. Suddenly I couldn't breathe. The flu? Here? Impossible. I shook my head, trying to convince myself they must be talking about something else. Regardless, my point stands and it's my classroom, said Miss Carrington with a note of finality. It's not Jeremiah's job to share it, especially when his only goal is to scare people. Caleb released an acquiescent sigh and said, You're right. I'll have a talk with him. Not his place. Thank you. Welcome. Sorry for coming at you earlier. I guess I'm just... scared. I already lost his mama. If I lost my boy too, I don't know what I'd do. Throw a party? I telepathically suggested. Not my most sanctified thought. I think we're all a little scared, Miss Carrington replied. Yeah, well, I'd best get Jer home. Have a pleasant evening, Anne. And you, Mr. Lassiter. The school door opened and closed. Around the corner I waited until the sound of footsteps on gravel had grown distant. When I was certain I was safe, I hurried from my hiding spot. I felt a twinge of guilt over my eavesdropping, but what I felt in far greater measure was fear. At nine years old, I didn't know how to process either the new feelings or the new information. So instead, I ran, as if the flu itself were bounding after me, baring its snarling teeth, I ran for my life. I came quickly to Main Street. The school was only two blocks north, past Jorgensen's law office and Mel's diner and Harold's meats went the blur of my spindly form. Sheriff Clark, on the telephone inside the police station, glanced at me and then behind me, certain I was being chased. Folks strolling along the storefronts stopped and gawked. Yet I ran on, unfazed by their gossipy whispers. But as I approached Euchre's pharmacy, I spotted something that finally managed to stop me dead in my tracks. My attention, so consumed a moment ago with the flu, fell victim at once to a newer and deadlier dread. Ahead of me, Hattie was walking at my brother's side and they were holding hands. I blinked, certain my eyes were playing tricks on me. But it was no illusion. Hattie and Walter were truly, really, 
nauseatingly holding hands.